This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. My name is Steve Anglesey. On this week's show, we'll be talking political football with Steve Richards. We'll be talking freedom and sadopopulism. Yes. You heard that right, Sado-Populism with Alistair Campbell. And we'll be bringing you a special clip from a special edition of the New European Podcast. Jason Solomons with the great Charlotte Gansborg, live, well, not really live, it's recorded, from the Cannes Film Festival. Now, I'm not in Cannes, I'm not even on the Cannes yet. Um, I suspect you're not in Cannes either. But if you're in Britain, are you looking forward to Freedom Day? Isn't it great that COVID is knocking off its shift at midnight on Sunday the 18th, just like in those cartoons when Sam Sheepdog and the wolf that looked just like Wiley Coyote, they, they clocked off and on, didn't they? And then they went about their business. Um, now, I really love live music. I love the cinema. I love going to the theatre. I love sitting at the bar in pubs. I should be up for all of this. I should be up for Freedom Day. I should be excited that I'm going to go to the movies next week and watch that Truffle Hunters film that Jason Solomons was talking about. I'm, I don't have to wear a mask when I go to the cinema. And I'm, I'm going to a gig at Ronnie Scott's soon. And I don't have to wear a mask in there. Um, 
I should be excited that I'm going back to the French house soon, which is my favourite pub in London, and I won't have to wear a mask in there. And I should be excited that I'm going to see a big musical at the end of this month, and I don't have to wear a mask when I'm watching that either. But I'm not excited. I'm I'm worried about it. And it, it's not just because I found out that Gary Wilmot's in the musical. Did you see that in the Netherlands, where they lifted all COVID restrictions by social distancing three weeks ago, positive COVID tests went up by 500% last week? I mean, here they only went up by 26%. I say only, but that's bad enough as this variant rages. And in Holland, those 37% of the infections that could be tracked came from a pub or a bar or a nightclub. We're reopening nightclubs, aren't we, on, on Monday, on Freedom Day, and we're encouraging people to stand up at the bar again. Imagine if our positive tests went up by 500%. I know the science doesn't work like this, but if we saw that replicated here, that's way over a million positive tests a week now. There won't be any freedom because we'll all have been pinged and we'll all be self-isolating. And again, I know the science doesn't work like this either, but 500% rising deaths would bring us back to where we were in mid-January, it's frightening. It feels so risky to me when friends who've been double-jabbed get COVID again. What if that's me? What if that's you? What if this time it's long COVID? And what if we're passing it on to the unjabbed here or on the foreign holidays the government says we should also be allowed to take? And all this is happening because people in the Conservative Party, because the Daily Mail, because the Daily Telegraph, because the Sun, are all getting antsy. So Boris Johnson is risking the country once again to do something silly because his friends want it. Where have we heard all that before? In a moment, I'll catch up with Steve Richards. But first, we ask some new European podcast listeners if they were looking forward to the ludicrously named Freedom Day, if their routines were going to change. Uh, Phil at Crooks on the Run on Twitter says, I'm a grocery worker. I can't get people to abide by COVID safety rules to protect each other and me now when I have the theoretical force of law on my side. One in 10 of my colleagues have been assaulted over this. It's about to get so much worse. How do I feel? Have a guess. Monty Thoreau says they've robbed our freedom of movement off us and now they're handing it over to COVID-19. At Mick Barton says, being afraid to go shopping or to use public transport is not freedom. More people, especially the clinically vulnerable, will actually feel more trapped and more isolated after the so-called Freedom Day. Richard Jenkins, he says, it's herd immunity by mass infection. The lifting of basic mandatory mask wearing and distancing says it all. And at Black Canine 65 says, it's loss of Freedom Day for anyone who understands the science, just as Brexit was loss of Freedom Day for anyone who understands anything, really. At Juliet is a mod, says it's loss of Freedom Day for people like me who are immunosuppressed. I'll have to go back to shielding again. And Anne Royden says Freedom Day will be the day that we have an independent Scotland. And Anthony Ward says real Freedom Day will be when Johnson and his pal are gone. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could just about with stomach watching Boris Johnson glad handing with Parry Kane and Gareth Southgate, Raheem Sterling, all those people in the number 10 garden, if England had won the Euros and Doubly so if Tyrone Mings had taken the Prime Minister aside for a quick word too. But does England falling at the final hurdle mean that the Tories have missed out on a potential pole bounce, maybe even missed out on the chance to call an early election? 
Will England now enter a slough of despond that might even result in English voters disliking Boris Johnson as much as voters in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland seem to dislike Boris Johnson? Or does none of that it matter in the first place? To answer these questions, it's a pleasure to be joined on this podcast by the journalist, broadcaster and the host of Rock and Roll Politics, Steve Richards, who has written about politics and football in this week's New European. Steve, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on the podcast again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Um, you. First of all, you're gigging again uh, before we talk about football. Tell us about rock and roll politics going back on the road. Yeah, it's out and about. It was being um, streamed live throughout the lockdown. But, um, for example, uh, this coming Sunday, if people are listening to the podcast before uh, Sunday, I'm live at the Greenwich Theatre. Uh, and the last time I was at the Greenwich Theatre was in um, September when Boris Johnson, do you remember, did that silly thing of saying, oh, we're, we're going to be very tough. And all he did was said the pubs had to close at 10 o'clock or something uh, <laughs> while, the, <laughs> while the virus raged. So I'm going to be back there on Sunday, which, of course, is the eve of Freedom Day, Freedom Day which is another kind of mad junction in this whole thing. So that'll be great. And, and there are lots of other dates as well. Good. Well, yeah, I mean, you can check those out, Steve's Twitter uh, and, uh, and other places. Um, let's go into the aftermath of this Euros. How significant do you think it is? Uh, and of course, you've written this piece about, about politics and football in this week's New European. How significant do you think it is that having jumped with both feet onto this England bandwagon, Boris Johnson and Priti Patel have been now been firmly instructed by people like Tyrone Mings to get off the England bandwagon. Is that is that going to change any minds, do you think? Yeah, I think fleetingly it will. And it will make Johnson, Patel and the, the so-called anti-wokery sort of culture in number 10, where they target certain populist themes to stoke up a kind of a contrived anger, uh, they will feel on the defensive at the moment because uh, the England team are in fashion after the European Championship uh, and that makes it harder, much harder for them when they're challenged so directly by glamorous players. But as I argue in the New European this week, I mean, I would love to come on and say, oh, this is going to be a profound shift in politics, uh, that uh, this will mean that the Johnson government will not be able to play the sort of nationalistic populist cards, including the race card, uh, because the footballers have changed the whole political culture. I have to say, I'm afraid the evidence suggests that that will not be the case, that a lot of the assumptions that football and politics interconnect are just wrong. They appear to, but they really don't. Election results just don't bear it out. And yet there are there are plenty of smart politicians, smart people, election winners who, who have tried to do this. What are well, I mean, you talk in the piece about John Major, you talk about Harold Wilson. What, what was their experience? Yeah, I mean, and they're by no means alone. Uh, they all assume that to be associated with a successful England team will bring them a feel-good factor, which will give them a sort of electoral boost. Harold Wilson used to go around. Uh, Wilson was one of these prime ministers who learned to have a sense of humour and then used wit brilliantly. And he used to go around, he could say it to this very day if he were alive, he used to go around saying, have you noticed 
You only win World Cups, or England only wins World Cups, under a Labour government. And it was true, of course, they won in 1966. Um, But uh, here's one of the many twists. Lots of people have assumed, because Wilson won a landslide in 1966, um, but actually he won it months before England won the World Cup, so there was no connection. Uh, England then lost unexpectedly to West Germany during the World Cup in 1970 in Mexico, and then Labour lost an election. And Wilson thought there was a connection, but actually if you look back to that election, there were many other reasons why Labour lost. It had nothing really to do with the football major eight, as Alistair Campbell reports in his diaries, for England to win the semi-final at Wembley in the 1996 European Championship. He was in deep trouble as Prime Minister with a tottering government. He thought there would be a feel-good factor of which he would be a beneficiary if England won. We will never know because, as ever, they lost, didn't win that championship. But I doubt it. There were much deeper forces uh, threatening the major government and propelling Blair into power in 1997, that would still have applied whatever had happened in the football. So that's kind of two examples of very serious prime ministers associating their fates with football. In both cases, I think they're wrong. Yes. I mean, Major was already, I mean, I think he was probably 25 points back in the polls. Exactly. Wasn't he? And he, was, he, exactly. Needed, he needed snookers rather than... Uh, rather than <laughs> yeah, he, he needed absolute miracles. Now, I know we've all come to the conclusion it will be a miracle for England to win one of these <laughs> trophies after what happened again uh, against Italy. But um, you're absolutely right. He was 20 plus points behind in the polls. And this would not have changed it and and there are many other examples you know Gordon Brown of modern prime ministers was much the most genuine passionate football supporter if you bumped into him he would recite the Wraith Rovers team from 1951 you could probably name the date of a match and he could do it he he loves football genuinely Um, you would have thought that would help him but David Cameron who kind of affected a passionate support for Aston Villa who he got confused with West Ham won you know, Heath won in 1970 against Wilson. Heath wasn't interested in football. So there is a sort of temptation. Uh, Thatcher, of course, no interest in football and didn't feel under pressure to affect one. England, as a football team, did terribly in the 80s. She still won landslide after another. So it's kind of very tempting, especially at the moment when people are seeing this battle between footballers from the England team and Patel and Johnson's kind of populism uh, you know, taking the knee and other things. Um, but really, they don't interconnect in the end. As I say, they might do every now and again, fleetingly, but but not with any lasting consequence. It's always hilarious to see uh, to see people who plainly don't like football trying to, uh, to, trying to uh, <laughs> connect with football. Yeah. I, I mean, people with really long memories, uh, uh, memories, sadly, as long as mine will, will I think we'll remember when, uh, Margaret Thatcher was the guest of honour at the 1978 FA Cup final and, and she was asked oh, yeah. to pick a man of the match and she she named uh, Trevor Weimark, who wasn't actually playing in the game. <laughs> she'd, uh, she'd just confused him with, with Roger Osborne, who scored the goal, who was wearing Trevor Weimark's shirt because Trevor Weimark was injured. Um, is, <laughs> but, you by the way... That- that was 78, was it? Well, she, yeah. she was leader of the opposition then. She went on to win an election in 79. So It didn't her, count against her, her. It didn't count against her, her total footballing ignorance in a very 
as you say, silly and embarrassing way. And, and I mean, and, and Harold Wilson did, I remember Harold Wilson did sort of blame 1970 on, yeah. on England. But again, the fault lines were there for him, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I mean, in 1967, there was a dramatic devaluation of the pound. And prime ministers never recover from these devaluations. Major had it with the collapse, Britain falling out of the exchange rate mechanism after his 92 election win. He was never ahead in the polls again. And Wilson was similarly uh, humiliated in 1967. There were divisions within the Labour cabinet. There were a lot of strikes. Um, and these were the reasons why. I mean, he still called the election then, not actually because of the football, but because he was ahead in the polls and he thought he was going to win. Uh, who can blame him? And the polls still influence the way we see politics. But he didn't. Uh, but, I, you know, the, the World Cup really wasn't a factor. And as I say, Heath knew nothing about football. He was, he was obsessed by sailing and conducting choirs. Um, but he, he didn't know anything about football. Now, with, I mean, I'm, I am going to spoil some of your article here slightly because I think this is a, this is a great point about the link between political success and, um, and sport. And you, you talk about the London Olympics. Um, as proof yeah. that sport doesn't yeah. really intrude. So, so just just explain that. Well, I think this is the sort of decisive case, yes. really. Obviously, not football, but there were the Lump London Olympics, twenty twelve, and everybody, every column was saying, "Wow, look at how the UK has changed. It is a modern, international, liberal country hosting with great success this international." global event and four years later that very same country voted to leave the European Union and the leader of an insular parochial Brexit campaign was the then mayor of London Boris Johnson and as you know there have been lots of articles since agonizing about what had happened between 2012 and 2016 and I'm afraid the answer is nothing happened um, you know, that probably that same country would have voted for Brexit at any point, including 2012. In other words, we like to think you can extrapolate more widely between sport and politics, but you can't. I think it's not really a secret that Boris Johnson doesn't really like football. And, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think when, when you know, when you see Priti Patel um, in, the, in the photo with her, the, the, the ink wearing an England shirt that's got a big crease down it because it's clearly just come out of the packet. Um, I'm guessing that Priti Patel doesn't like football either. And that's fine. You know, it's for some people like football, yeah. some people don't yeah. like football. That's absolutely fine. Keir Starmer li likes football. He's an Arsenal season ticket holder. He yeah. was at the Euro 96 semi-final. We, we, we know all this in what way can he capitalize on all of this now and on johnson and patel's discomfort well because it is genuine it gives him some space to make something of this moment he, he not only is an arsenal season ticket holder uh, a friend of mine plays with him every monday night five-a-side football and if he can get there he's there he loves it so when you are genuine about something uh, it really helps in politics. In other words, 
even surely the most ardent Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel fan, and some of them are out there, as we all know, will have seen through this absurd attempt to pretend that they're passionate about football or indeed this particular England football team. Uh, remember, uh, Patel uh, refused to condemn the booing of England players when they took the knee earlier on, when it was less fashionable to kind of back them. Um, whereas Starmer is genuinely passionate. So in that, he has, I think, got space to challenge Johnson's kind of attempt to stir it by not supporting the players overtaking the knee and, um, and, and other matters uh, to do with the sort of symbolism of the last few weeks. But again, I think it will only get him so far. Now, because there, yes, elections sorry, will be decided by other things. Yes, um, I was going to say just just finally because I, because I know we've got to let you go. Um, do you think the experiences of the last few days have made Johnson more determined or less keen on bidding for the the, the twenty thirty World Cup and another chance to kind of hitch his hitch his his wagon to uh, to the three lines? I think he will go for it because that's what he tends to do. And his view of kind of British exceptionalism drummed into him uh, when studying at Eton um, is still very much part of his political repertoire. So to pull away from the intended desire to do so uh, would be out of character. Um, and and you can hear him say, nowhere better, nowhere better, world-beating, world-beating World Cup. Um, he will go for it. But I, I don't see many people who uh, think uh, England have much of a chance in winning uh, that bid. And, and the scenes before and after the final will not have helped. I know loads of people have said that, but it's true. Um, so, uh, but, I, but he won't pull away because he doesn't do that when there's a sort of campaign to be fought. He, he, he struggles with policy implementation and detail, but he likes the campaigning and the sort of uh, parading that uh, is involved in these sort of campaigns. But, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think it's highly unlikely that he will win it, but he will calculate that doesn't matter. It's the act of being seen to try. Uh, that he will want to be seen doing. Yes, he does. He he loves a, he loves a, a spectacle, doesn't he? And it, it's not really yeah. Europe's turn to to host the tournament, but I presume he'll he'll advocate building a bridge to whichever continent's turn it is. To, to, <laughs> yeah, that will be one. Did you notice, by the way, talking about the symbolism of all this? Even though any authentic football supporter was horrified when he turned up at the. Um, semi-final with an England shirt over his kind of suit. Um, he did it again for the final. I saw a photo of him with Tom Cruise and a few others at the final, and he had the same thing on again. So he has calculated that for all the ridicule, the symbolism of his attachment, his sudden attachment to the England football team works, however naff it looks to those of us who go to games on a regular basis and don't meet anyone who puts a shirt on over their suit. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that he thinks he will get away with this kind of symbolism. 
Well, for more of that kind of political insight, maybe some football insight, certainly some superb <laughs> impressions as well, uh, you can, uh, uh, well, go, go watch Steve's Rock and Roll Politics show. It's, it's, it's coming back to, to a theatre near you. Steve, where can, where can people find the dates? Um, well, at the moment, uh, they will have to follow me on Twitter at Steve Richards 14 or the various websites where they're taking place. King's Place in London, as I said, the Greenwich Theatre, this Sunday is the first. And then quite a few in September, Brighton, the Rope Tackle Arts Centre and so on on their websites. I'll be tweeting about it and I do a weekly podcast as well where the details are regularly revealed. <laughs> Marvellous, marvellous. That's Steve Richards, whose most recent book is The Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to Johnson. You can read his piece on politics and football in this week's New European. And if you'd like more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Thanks, Steve. Great. Lovely to talk again. Alistair Campbell coming up shortly. But first, on the back of all that football talk, we asked New European podcast listeners, if Boris Johnson and Priti Patel played for a football team, what would that football team be called? Uh, Robert Davey says there's no shortage of inspiration for names from around the world. Uh, Villa Real in the Cayman Islands. Uh, or given the Tory thing for extramarital affairs, what about plain old Westminster Wanderers? Lee Whitfield says, I don't know what their football team would be called, but they'd be playing in the English Defence League. Elaine Pickering says, no longer united. And Deanna Jones says, White Tone and Gove Albion. Uh, the Mads Hatter says, Clanchester United. David Fleming says, Aston Villains. Carl suggests the Little England Patriots. Come Together suggests deported La Coruña and Chris Hill says that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel's football team would be called Real Xenophobia. Hello, I'm Ian Dunt. I write every week in The New European on Westminster politics and what happens after Brexit. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And now rejoining us to discuss his cover story in this week's New European, it's New Labour architect, prolific diarist, sometime GMTV host, and our editor-at-large, it's Alistair Campbell. Hi, Alistair. Hi, how are you? By the way, it's GMP, not GMTV. Oh, it is. Of course it is, yeah. (laughs) At least I didn't say it was TVAM. No, I covered the launch of TVAM. Did you? Yeah, I did. I did. With the egg cups. uh, I did the whole, there was a pub, what was that pub called? Um, Right opposite, and we just used to park ourselves in there. And every time we saw Michael Parkins or Anna Ford or any of those guys coming out, David Frost, we just run across the road. And yeah, amazing. Happy days. days. Amazing. Um, If your ears have been burning a bit, it's just because we've had Steve Richards on talking about you watching John Major at the Euro 96 final. And Steve's got a piece in the paper this week, as you know, about the way that politicians sometimes believe their fates tied in with the fate of the national team. Did In, in your new Labour days, did you and, and Tony Blair buy into any of that? No, and I, I think I think I read Steve's piece this morning, and I, th- and I think he's right. I think it's, it's kind of overstated. But I do think that there's a, you know, I think mood is very important in politics. I think mood is very important in terms of how a country feels about itself. I think if England had won, it would have, I mean, I think because the Tories have so messed up their handling of the whole Black Lives Matter thing, which has just disgusted me to the core and I think disgusted a lot of people. 
Um, I don't think they'd have necessarily got a political bounce as such, but I do think that there's the thing about the mood is important. And the point about 1996 is that by then we labor we were so far ahead of the Tories yeah. that i think the tories were just looking around for anything they were a bit desperate and i i could just sense i mean you know as you know john major's become a sort of you know a great hero of the pro-european movement so i may be i may be a bit more positive about him today than i was then but i do think that he i do think they, they were banking on something special very happening and that that might have given them a lift but no i don't i don't buy the idea that that that, that you know, just because your national team does well. Yeah, they did need snookers at the time, as as, as we said, uh, as Steve and I said. Just before we move on to, to Sado populism, mm. just one more on football and your time with with uh, in number 10. In 1997, you, you dealt with this story that Tony Blair had done an interview and for some reason it came out that he had said that he sat on the Gallagher end when he was a boy, um, at Newcastle United's ground and he watched Jackie Milburn play and none of this was true because yeah. it sort of proved, you know, this, this was held up as proof that he was a, a wrong one because Jackie Milburn retired when Tony Blair was four. Tony Blair was in living in Australia at the time that Milburn retired and there were no seats on the Gallagher end until the 90s anyway. Yeah. Tell, just tell me about that moment, the, the, the situa- that situation. Well, it's just weird how these myths kind of develop. And even when they get exposed as being complete myths, and the guy who, who, who sort of launched the story into the ether, as it were, he admitted that it wasn't true, that Tony hadn't ever said this. Yes, it's amazing. It's just incredible how these things stick. But, you know, whenever I get taught to talk, talk about football now, people always say, yeah, but Tony Blair made up that thing about watching Jackie Milburn. And you have to go, no, he didn't. But it's the, it's the old story about, you know, a lies, the, the, the lies halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. But what's the opposite with these guys, the Tories today, is they lie blatantly and routinely and we don't go on about it. Well, I do and you do and the new European does. And, but most people do. Oh, well, I mean, Johnson lied in PMQs this week. Nobody was defending the booing of the footballers. Well, yes, they were. And a lot of them are sitting behind you on the back benches and one of them's your home secretary. Yeah. And you were as well, because, you know, in my book, something like that, refusing to condemn is the same as condoning. So he lies blatantly and we sort of go, oh, well, Tony Blair, whether it's over something, you know, a bit trivial, like did he or didn't he stand on the Gallagate before there were, you know, when he was in his nappies or something like Iraq, that's more, you know, obviously much more serious. Tony, we get accused of lying when we didn't lie. These lot lie and people don't bat an eyelid now maybe this is all tied in with the idea of maybe maybe we've become so supplicant because of this idea of sado populism which you write about in the in the new european it's an amazing word what what is sado populism who who came up with this idea well I, i don't know who originally came up with it but i first came across it when actually one of our readers a guy called john mccusker who's been you know reading me ranting and raving for however long and he said, you must, you must watch this speech. So I clicked on this link, and it was this guy. It was a hist- an American historian, Timothy Snyder. And look, Britain wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't about Britain. It wasn't about Europe. It was about Trump. But he coined the phrase sado-populist for Trump, basically saying Trump is an absolute first in American political history. He is a president who is governing with policies, deeds, and words that 
are designed to damage the very people who elected him. So he talks about healthcare, for example. He's taking away the healthcare rights of the poorer people in the Midwest. Tax breaks, he's giving the tax breaks to the very rich, not to the people who you know, might benefit from them. Um, and you know, even some, and then on the global front, you know, America first. Uh, and it's also about, he says, Stato populism is about breaking the link between politics and the future. It's about politics and the past. So you revive enmities, you make America great again. He makes he, he made the point that if if you go back to, you know, when we talk about the past, the halcyon days, let's say people are talking about post-war America or the 70s and the 80s. Now, you can have an argument about whether they were great or not. But he said that the, the three main the things that were happening at that point, the gap between rich and poor was narrowing. Educational standards were improving. The unions were strong. He said, if you really wanted to kind of recreate those, you'd pursue policies that were aimed at getting back to something like that. Whereas, in fact, education policies, standards are declining, unions are getting weaker, and the gap between rich and poor is getting greater because that is what people like Trump and people like Johnson actually want. So I just thought this is really, really interesting. But then you say to yourself, well, hold on a minute. How could anybody govern if they're going to make their lives worse? Of the people who are voting for them. Yeah, yeah. and the answer, his answer to that is what they do, and this is where the culture wars stuff comes in, they, they, they feed them narratives, stories that build up fear, anxiety, hatred, division, and central to it is making them feel angry about other people who, and also making them feel there are other people out there whose lives are even worse. So I make the point, for example, in fact, I'm going to write about this for next week a little bit, but, if, but I've made the point that Brexit, for example, Brexit, we've all said this, you know, I'm assuming that most regular readers of New European probably agree with this. Brexit is damaging the lives of a lot of people who voted for it, okay? That's not, a con that's not just a sort of a side effect. It's, it's a, that's what it was about. Mm. This lot, the whole I've written before about the whole sovereign individual thing, the libertarian right want to have less democratic control over them. They want to be able to do the stuff that they do to make themselves richer without any kind of accountability. We're seeing it now in the way this government operates in relation to COVID contracts and so forth. And overseas aid is a classic one. Very few people listening to this are likely to meet some of those, the, the sort of person who's so desperate, they're getting into a dinghy and they're risking their life to come across the channel, right? We're not going to meet those people. And yet that the policy, whether it's on an overseas aid or asylum and immigration, it's less designed to have an impact on those people than to have an impact on the people who are sitting at home in, you know, wherever in England and saying, oh, well, at least I'm not an asylum seeker. Oh, at least I don't, at least I don't have to worry about my overseas aid cut if I'm stupid enough to think that I'm going to, you know, be able to come here. And, I, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing a column. I've started to write my column for this week and, I'm, and I've started it by saying the overseas aid vote this week, it will kill people. Now, we won't be able to point at the person that they're going into the ground and say, that was done by Boris Johnson, that was done by Raab, that was done by Suna, that was done by those Tory MPs who voted for, voted for it. And in a way, that suits the Sado populist, because they just want people to think, yeah, they're, they're looking after us rather than looking after other people. Charity begins at home, all that stuff. But they're going to kill people. And, yes. you know, so it's about, it's about making 
you feel that even your own, though your own life not might not be great, and even though government policy might be affecting you adversely, they will keep getting you to focus on others. And it's all this politics of othering, of division, of hate. And they've got this, you know, I keep saying on television in the hope that some of the papers might pick it up. There's this so-called power couple in number 10, Doug Smith and Manira Mertzer. They exist. They run a unit in Downing Street, which colloquially in there is called the Culture Wars team. They exist to provoke these culture wars. And the best thing that's happened in the last few days is thanks to a few footballers with a bit of guts, and Tyrone Mings in particular, they've called it out. They've called it out and they've put them straight back onto the back foot. And Johnson has to pretend that, you know, he was supportive all along. Steve Baker has to, worried about the effect it's having in the home counties, goes on the radio to say, oh, we're on the wrong side of this argument. I mean, it's you know, ordinary, isn't it? When, when Steve Baker and Johnny Mercer are your, uh, <laughs> your ally. I know, and, da- and David Davis and Theresa May on aid. Yes, exactly. Quite but incredible. This, but this, and this is what I say. Like I say at the end of the, of the piece on Sado populism, you know, it sounds mad. Right. It sounds crazy to think that they are going to deliberately do bad things that are going to make life worse for people. OK, but when you look at what's actually happening, it's not crazy at all. And when you read, when you and I do recommend, I think on the online version of the column, you've got a link to Timothy Snyder's speech, the one that I saw. It's really worth 12 minutes of your time to watch it. Yes, it's excellent. I mean, he says, if you hurt people, you create a resource of pain and anxiety and fear that can be directed against others. You teach people this is normal. The government can't help you. Life is full of pain, but you have the consolation that others are suffering more grievances than you are. And that's the mm. that's the key to it, isn't it? I mean, you say that, that Trump took America down this road, that Russia... Uh, already well down the next stage of the Sado populist journey, which which Snyder says is is deliberately undermining democracy. And how is Boris Johnson deliberately undermining democracy? Well, he undermines democracy by the the route that he took to become prime minister. He won. uh, He made himself famous through journalism. Okay, And being a liar. He made himself famous then as a politician by being the London mayor. And because he had to become London mayor, he was one set. He had one set of values. Then he gets elected on something completely different than to become an MP and to rise up through the ranks of the Tory party. He wins a referendum by telling a pack of lies. That's profoundly anti-democratic. And it's a failure of our democratic systems. And, you know, this is why I regret so much the failure of the People's Vote campaign, that we couldn't have got that put back to another vote because, you know, he won that vote by lying. He then becomes prime minister. And just look at stuff that he's done in the recent Queen's speech. This, um, you know, the voter ID, I think I'm right in saying there were six prosecutions for uh, electoral fraud. The idea that that is a people's priority, they're doing it to make it harder for poorer people to vote. As Ian Blackford said in the Commons last week, it's about the government trying to choose the people who vote rather than the people choose the government. So so the the Electoral Commission, Uh, the Electoral Commission, I think it's been accepted has got a legitimate role in ensuring that elections are fair, that there's no criminality, etc. Because he has a tantrum about them investigating who paid for his flat and all that disgusting wallpaper stuff, he's decided to go down that route. So that's that's another way in which they're, they're, they're kind of undermining democracy. They're undermining the institutions that hold them to account. He does it every time he lies in Parliament and gets mm-hmm. away with it. Um, that is undermining democracy. So look, I think we're talking here about 
I talked to Tony Blair the other day about this, and I said, because I, I don't even remember, I did an interview with Tony for GQ magazine. And I said to him, look, you're not worried about Trump. This is when Trump was in power. You're not worried about all the parallels with the 1930s. And he says, oh, I said, don't be so ridiculous. You and this thing about Trump and Hitler and Stalin and fascism and all that. Well, and I, but I said, go and read Madeleine Albright's book. It's called Fascism, A Warning. And a lot of what they do, a lot of what this government does is it, it's pre-fascist. You know, the fact that another one, I'll give you another one about undermining democracy. That guy, Steve Bray who hangs yes. around Parliament and, you know, he adds a bit of colour. And yes, he's, you know, he can be very aggressive and he can shout at Tory MPs and all that stuff. But they admitted, there was a story in the Daily Express, the government basically saying that this part of this, this curbing protest is partly about just shutting him up. Yes. That's, thought, so well, that's, that's profoundly anti-democratic. Hmm. So they're curbing protests. They're giving more powers to the police to, you know, to arrest people who are protesting, you know, noisily. They're, 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 they're making it harder to vote. This is all profoundly anti-democratic. Even the fact of that vote on overseas aid is anti-democratic to win an election with a specific promise to keep your spend 0.7% spending of GDP on overseas aid and then use the excuse of COVID to say you're not going to do it. And they're doing that as part of Sado populism as well. That's about, as I said earlier, that's not about, that's saying, well, we don't really give a damn about overseas aid. We give a damn about what, about what you think. You, the voters that we, who support, we need to stay in power. We give a damn about what you think. And we want you to think, uh, well, at least they're cutting their money, not mine. But actually, they're cutting your money as well. Universal credit. I, I was going to say, I started off this podcast talking about the ludicrously named Freedom Day. Yeah. I mean, is, is this an act of Sado populism? It is certainly positioning people to, to, to go, uh, to, it's, it's setting people against one another, isn't it? As well as being an incredibly risky thing to do. You know, I, I, I don't care. I don't mind. I'm going to take, seize my freedoms and I don't really care about whether I transmit anything to you. Well, look, this may be over the top. I just did a tweet early this morning today saying, you know, the thing about pre-fascist governments is that it's not a bad idea whenever they speak to, th to, to imagine the opposite of what they're saying, because that might reveal their true intentions. And it's a terrible thing to say about your own government, but that's what I feel with this lot. So when Johnson is making his big speech up in Coventry, make it say absolutely nothing. Leveling up is a slogan without a strategy. There's nothing there, right? They're not, in he's not interested in leveling up. Of course not. Right, he's got no interest in that whatsoever. And so I'd say that the, this thing about so-called Freedom Day, we've just talked about several instances of where free people's freedoms have been taken away. The biggest loss of freedom that we have endured, never mind COVID, COVID's going to go eventually. The biggest loss of freedom that this country, the citizens of this country have endured in recent times, is the loss of the freedom to live, to travel in 27 other countries. That's the biggest loss of freedom. The freedom of movement, the freedom of, you know, the freedom to be a member a citizen of, of, of something that is, you know, I think is given far more good than bad to the world. Now, that's a massive loss of freedom. So rather than have people focus on that, we'll invent this thing about Freedom Day. And as you say, you look at the, you, you pick up the Times today, you, they do that little graph every day of, you know, cases or what have you. And we are now top of the league again. We are world beating for new cases, right? Yep. So the policy is going in direct contradictory direction to the data, right? 
And we know because here's Sado populism for it, because he says it, he puts on his grim face at the lectern and says, and I have to tell you, people will die. Yeah, people will die because you gave the Delta variant the red carpet treatment and you welcomed it in because you were hoping to get the red carpet treatment yourself on your little trade mission to India to see your fellow populist Narendra Modi, right? So, but he doesn't want people talking about that. That's what's driving up the cases. He, he'd, he'd rather that we were all focusing, and I'm afraid that our media is so, so gullible in the way that it falls into these traps. Even this, the levelling up speech, they all, they, all, they all report it. Like what he says is of some significance. Go back to the last speech he made about leveling up. Go back to those promises that were made and analyze what progress has been made on them. We're dealing here, we're dealing here with a rogue government. Yes, we definitely are. Which, which the, the most of the media treat as though it's, you know, Theresa May speaking, David Cameron, Tony yeah. Baird, Gordon Brown, Margaret Thatcher, whoever it might be, John Major, right? This is not a normal government, and the media needs to wake up and start understanding that unless they hold them better to account, you know, they're, <laughs> they're going to be swept away in the whirlwind as well. Now, we seem to end all of these discussions by saying, uh, after 15 minutes of talking about how terrible the government are, we, we then go, uh, yes, but they're still X points ahead of Labour in the polls. Mm. And again, we saw, we've seen a poll in the last couple of days where Labour have dropped a couple of points, the Tories have gained a, a couple of points. Is this... I was thinking the other night about that thing that Gerald Kaufman used to say, which where he used to say there are two things necessary to win an election. The, the government for, for an opposition party, the government have to be hated and you have to be loved. And is it is it just that the Labour Party have not really set out their stall enough to be loved yet? I don't think I don't think the opposition needs to be loved. I think the opposition. Look, it's great if you can be. Uh, yeah. But and I, you know I, so, I, but I think what the opposition always needs to to have is 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 a sense that they can be an alternative government and they could take over any time, right? As I go about the place, I get a sense that there is there are quite a lot of people out there who you know quite like Johnson, quite like the government, think they say the right things. Give them the benefit of the doubt on Brexit. Give them the benefit of the doubt on COVID. Right now, let's say they're a you know, a, a, a fairly sizable minority, okay? Then you've got, I think, a growing, sizable, I think it's potentially a majority already, who really cannot stand this government, really despise it. I, you know, I know I'm probably attracting, as I go, I was up in Yorkshire yesterday, as I, as I probably attract people who, you know, will come and say to me things that maybe they, they think I want to hear or, you know, yeah. but however, I was really struck up in, in, it's my birthplace actually, up in Keithley, just how many people were basically saying, I cannot stand Johnson. I cannot stand this government. I hate the way that they talk about the North as though, you know, somehow we're all kind of, you know, we're part of them now. It was a lot of that kind of real, real antipathy. And then I think you get, you know, a lot of, I mean, I hate using the word educated, but you know what I mean. I'm talking about, you know, degree people, professionals, who where you really sense the kind of at the end of their tether of what this government's doing to the country. But then you've got the people in the middle. They're the ones you've always got to win. And I think at the moment they're turned off by all of it. Um, and Labour has got to get the policies and the strategies and the voice that's in there with those people. And, you know, I think there's a lot that needs to be done. It's like... Um, 
I think, you know, I didn't see PMQs, but, you know, reading up on it, it seems that Starmer absolutely battered Johnson yesterday. And I think he does that fairly regularly. But you've got to be out there all the time with message, with strategy, with clarity about who you are and what you're going to do. And, you know, I think one of the difficult things, this goes back to this theme of pseudo-populism, I don't think Labour's yet quite worked out how do you deal with somebody who is just a liar? Because, you know, I think they have a, they probably think that, you know, for a lot of the public, they think, oh, well, all politicians are liars. Now, it's not true, but a lot mm. of people think that. So if you make a big thing about that, is that actually maybe going to play against you? For me, the big thing that Labour needs to do is to have a much clearer sense of strategy and much, much clearer sense of the importance of policy in the debate. And this also, by the way, would play to Keir Starmer's strengths against Johnson. I think there's almost, there's almost a merit in Keir being the person who's out there making rather kind of dense policy-based speeches about the challenges facing the country. But they've got to do, you can do that. I remember, I think it was the 2001 election. The spine of our election campaign was six serious heavyweight speeches. Now, people don't remember them, but at the time, that was what we built the campaign around. It wasn't just about slogans. It wasn't just about election broadcasts. It was saying, right, we have got the big policy agenda for the future. And that's where I think Labour have, have, got, to, have got to be much more active, much more high profile. Yes, they certainly do. Thank you so much, Alistair Campbell. Uh, it's been now, a by the way, I know you, you, you always do the ode to join the bagpipes, but hold on a minute. Oh, hang on. This is this. I play. This is. Uh, I sit here at my desk. I, I sit with my practice chanter, right? So, I, I learned a couple of new ones this week. Fantastic. Was it Stormzy? <laughs> so then that, that's the, and, and then the other thing I learned was that I learned Ness and Dormer as well. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Alistair Campbell. His great piece about Sado populism is in this week's New European bit of bagpipes thrown in too. If you'd like to read more from Alistair and enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, in a minute, or three minutes to be precise, we will be entering the Hall of Shame once again. But first, some news about a special edition of the New European Podcast, which you can find on your podcatcher of choice in the same feed where you found this podcast. It'll just pop up in there. Our film writer, Jason Solomons, has been at the Cannes Film Festival. And in the clip you're about to hear, he's talking to a real favourite of mine, it's Charlotte Gansborg, about the documentary she's made about her mother, Jane Birkin. The documentary is called Jane by Charlotte, uh, and in it they return to the home they shared with the late Serge Gansborg. Now, this clip will last for about three minutes. I hope it whets your appetite for the main event. So check it out, a Cannes Film Festival special with Jason Solomons talking to actors and critics at Cannes. It's in the New European podcast feed, and he's starting with Charlotte Gansborg. Charlotte Gansborg, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And congratulations on your film. I loved it. Thank you very much. It's, it's a documentary. The intention was a documentary. 
Yeah, but it's a d- different to that. Like, you've, got a- well, you've got the best access anyone could probably have. <laughs> That's for sure. But the, the starting point was to make a documentary about my mother, to follow her on tour. Of course, the professional side that everybody knows, but to have my own look on, on her... And then very quickly I realised, in fact, I wanted to ask her very personal stuff. Yeah, you did, and you really and did. Did, <laughs> did, did she mind? She did mind, yes, because it started the wrong way. I was choosing locations in Japan, so I, I did shoot the concert and the rehearsals and everything. It was beautiful. Then we shot different locations that were very much to do with Kate because Kate loved Japan so my sister Kate and then I wanted a setup to be able to do an interview because I thought that's you know a documentary of course you have interviews so I wrote down all the questions that I I could possibly think of and and thought it has to be personal it has to has to mean something I can't just ask uh, questions that I have answers to so I went straight to the point and asked a very intimate thing to start with. But I was so shy that I think it came across as an examination. And she was completely put off by that. Is this the bit where she says she was intimidated by you? Yeah. And then she was very emotional and continued because she's very polite. But then when we came back to Paris and I said, so can I go on and she was about to do the Carnegie Hall in New York can I shoot you there and she said no this is done I don't want you to film me anymore and I understood that I had really uh, brutalized her and shocked her so two years went by and she came at one point in New York to to visit and I said do you want to see the footage of Japan I didn't dare look at it because I, I was so sure that I had done something wrong and we we looked at this footage that was very beautiful and there was no bad intentions you know and, and we could see that it was very caring of course maladroit I don't know how you say maladroit clumsy clumsy and and uh, not done in in the right way but it was a starting point yeah. Jason Solomons with Charlotte Gansborg there et maintenant la salle de la honte uh, the Hall of Shame. It's our home for bad politicians, Brexiteers host by their own petard, things that annoy me generally, thankfully not um, uh, bad uh, French pronunciations as I just did there. Let's start with Dan Hodges, the political columnist for the Mail on Sunday. Here's what he wrote earlier this week. Many players and many fans want some sort of anti-racism statement at the start of football games. Many fans do not back taking a knee, so we simply need a new anti-racist symbol that people can unite behind. Not one imported from the States, but one everyone can have ownership of. It's an amazing idea, isn't it? And I think we should let Dan Hodges, a white man of privilege, his mum's the great Glenda Jackson, devise an anti-racist symbol that he likes, and then he can explain to less privileged people of colours, the the players, why the anti-racism symbol that they chose wasn't quite right. The arrogance is quite breathtaking, isn't it? Now, 
Galak, Igad, Harumph, it's Unwidicum Corner. Yes, the magical time once again when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Unwidicum's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. It's hard to know where to start this week. Is it going to be the bit which includes this sentence? I once had a cat called Arbuthnot who would loftily brush aside any caresses and refuse to sit on my lap. No, it's not. Is it going to be the bit where Anne Widdicombe writes that the House of Lords is gripped by woke dogma and says that she's glad to be not to be in it? It's a handy hint there for Boris Johnson if he was thinking of adding Anne Widdicombe to his long list of Brexit headbanger lords like Baroness Claire Fox and Lord Sir Beefy Footbath, both of them. Is it going to be the bit where Anne is talking about the medal presentation at the end of the Euro final? Yes, it is. And she writes... I was horrified at the way England snatched off their runner-up medals as soon as they were presented and walked away looking miserable. It was graceless, unsporting and bad manners. This is sport, not war, and in defeat you should show grace and cheerfulness. God, she doesn't like the way England start games. Now she doesn't like the way they finish them either. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Andrew Pearce. He is the... Daily Mail columnist, GMB, sometime pundit, who said this week on GMB, Boris Johnson is the least likely Tory to be racist. He said that Boris Johnson is the least likely Tory to be a racist. I mean, how furious is Boris Johnson going to be when he sees the racist newspaper columns someone wrote under his name? I'm really looking forward to hearing from uh, Andrew Pearce in the future about how Boris Johnson is the least likely Tory to be a charlatan who ruffles up his hair before he goes on TV so he looks like a man of the people or he's the least likely Tory to be a liar who lies at PMQs every week or he's the least likely Tory to cheat on his wife or the least likely Tory to have loads of kids or the least likely Tory to be called Boris Johnson. Honestly. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks, too, to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. And please do check out Jason Solomon's Cannes special. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Join our Facebook readers group, you can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time that we meet, so long, snowflakes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.